we're going to be ready to serve our community. Uh, we'll also be ready to serve other communities. I believe that, uh, you know, God turns things out for good. And I think that we're going to be a part of that whole process. We had a day today, didn't we? We've experienced tons of flooding downtown Charleston. We hope you're safe. We're praying for you. If you've got any needs, we want to be able to serve. We want to be able to help. We know we're beginning a long process. Hey, Seacoast. I'm in downtown Charleston right now. And uh, for those of you that have been watching the news, uh, the ocean breached the battery, and it also overflowed Colonial Lake here. And one of our families from Seacoast lives in this house behind us, and we're mucking out their house, taking furniture out. Hundreds of you have stepped up to volunteer and to help people that are in the, the most need. And we just want to say thank you for being the church. We're here at Amber's house. She's a seacoaster. And because of the flooding from Irma, her house was damaged. Water went all throughout the house. So a bunch of us are here just trying to rip up carpet, move furniture, do, all, do as much as we can. And actually, we're here because she contacted relief at seacoast.org. All the people that have come out and help, all the volunteers, thank you so much, Seacoast Church, for all you do to give back to the community. Good to see you guys. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us uh, right now from an off-site campus or on the internet. We're glad that you guys are with us too. What a week. What an incredible week. We uh, gathered in a smaller group of us last weekend, not knowing what to do, you know, whether we have service or not. And um, as you saw some of the relief efforts, we were geared up for a big bunch of relief here in the Charleston area. Fortunately, we didn't need that. We, uh, we did help uh, several families, a bunch of families, and if you still need help here or wherever you happen to be watching from, um, just relief at seacoast.org um, will get us the information that we need, and we'd love to help you if we can. But uh, Florida was devastated, as many of you have been watching and know. We sent a team down to kind of look at it this week to see what we should do to shift our efforts maybe more that direction. And uh, there are hundreds of thousands of people uh, today without electricity. Now, I don't know about you, but during the storm, my electricity went out. How many of your electricity went out during the storm? And at about the three-hour mark, we started complaining. And, uh, and, and then our fire alarm started going off, which was a real blessing. Um, I thought it was about a half hour. Deb said it was an hour and a half. And uh, I told one of the grandkids, we had everybody over, going to have a hurricane party, you know. And, 14 grandkids and the fire alarms just blaring, just blaring, blaring, blaring. And, and I, told, I told Debbie, I said, if one more grandkid comes out and asks me, Papa, are you gonna turn the alarms off? I'm just gonna take them out. I'm just gonna <laughs> take them out right there. But you know, we, we complained about that and the, uh, the electricity came on. Imagine, uh, there's people in Florida that still have no electricity and uh, this is the United States. We, we had people lined up at uh, art churches. Fortunately, there's a bunch of churches. In fact, I read uh, one of the Washington newspapers that said the church st stepped up in these storms um, just incredibly. And we had 60 churches in the area. They were serving as many as 5,000 meals a day. Still are serving meals every day in Florida. People that 
can't get access to gasoline, the stores are closed, water's still high. Um, and uh, so anyway, the good news is the church is serving and doing well. Uh, we're going to be serving also. You guys have given amazingly. I'm not going to ask you for more money. You guys have given over $90,000 already toward hurricane relief, which is fantastic. And uh, we've already given some of it uh, in Texas, and we've given some in Florida, and we'll continue to do that. Uh, we'll uh, be sending teams soon, probably. We, we don't want to go down there yet. We want to be, be there when we can be a blessing and not a burden. How many of you would agree with that? And so we're working on that. We've sent some guys down to ta take a look at it. And we just want to say thank you. Thank you for stepping up. And those of you who volunteered to help in some way, uh, watch our social media or we'll get emails to you too that will tell you next steps and how you can be involved. I love the generosity of this church. You're generous in so many ways. Um, this weekend, through the church planting arm of this church, the Ark, we are planting 36 brand new life-giving churches this weekend. Is that not amazing? 36. 36. It's like somebody asked me after the last service, did you ever see that? No. <laughs> In one weekend. It's amazing. There will be over 10,000 people at the new churches this week. 10,000 on the first weekend. Hundreds will receive Jesus, walk into life in Christ for the first time. Um, and uh, of the 36 churches, 24 of them are in the western part of the United States, which is amazing because that's the toughest part of the United States, that in the Northeast, toughest part to plant churches. In fact, your lead pastor, Josh Surratt, is in San Francisco. We're planting one right in the center of San Francisco, one of his buddies, and he's an overseer for it. So they're there today uh, cheering them on, and uh, we're just excited about that. And you guys so generous in, in helping to do that. You're generous in, in what you allow us to do. I mean, we're led a little bit differently than any church in America, I think. You know, usually when you've got a founding pastor like myself, they preach most of the time. Well, we, we don't do that. We, we've got a teaching team, and you guys have responded really well to that. And because you do that, you allow us to see ministry beyond just Charleston in the United States, but globally. And uh, uh, God's kingdom is being advanced in an incredible, incredible way. 36 churches this weekend. Uh, this weekend, uh, our teaching pastor uh, is Jeff Surratt. He's my brother. He's one of my favorite teachers. I love it. I love his passion and compassion. You're gonna, we, we asked him to come and, and uh, 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 help us in the John series. He, uh, so he's, he's going to do that today. Next weekend, I'm going to be speaking and uh, finishing the series. Uh, Jeff currently is the uh, interim lead pastor of a very large church in the Denver area. And uh, his wife, Sherry, is with him also, and she is the uh, vice president of a group called Orange, which provides curriculum for children and students for a lot of the churches that we plant. And uh, they were a part of our team for a long time. We love them. They're still a part of our team. They just happen to live in Denver. How about that? Would you welcome Jeff as he comes and shares the word today? All right. Thank you. It's an incredible honor to be here, an incredible honor to be with you at, at, at Seacoast. We love Seacoast. We've been gone from Charleston for uh, six and a half years, and there's some things we, we just really, really miss about the low country and miss about living in Charleston. We really miss uh, shrimp and grits. Um, if you say shrimp and grits, people are clapping for shrimp and grits. That's, I've never had that before. If you say shrimp and grits in Denver, you get really strange looks. Um, we miss Seacoast. Uh, we still consider this our home church. We, we still watch online when, when we can. And 
loves to us. We, we miss our daughter. Our daughter works here at the Long Point campus. And I will tell you, though, there's one thing we don't miss at all. We don't miss hurricanes. None. None. In Denver, we have never had a hurricane watch, a hurricane warning. In fact, last week, when you guys were deciding whether to evacuate and getting ready for Irma and all that kind of stuff, honestly, in Denver, we were a little upset because it was a little hazy. We couldn't see the Rockies from our back deck, and that was our hurricane watch. So um, we don't miss it. But we've been praying for you guys. So fun to be back, especially in this season. This is an interesting season. And in Colorado, we call this time of year fall. I know you're not aware of what fall is, but... For us, leaves change, it gets a little cooler, and it's also a season of transitions. Over the summer, some of you got married, or, or, or maybe a, a child got married, and, and now in the fall, maybe, maybe you took uh, your, your, your oldest off to kindergarten for the very first time, and you dropped them, and as you drove away, a little tear ran down your cheek, right? Or, or maybe you dropped your youngest off at kindergarten for the very first time, and as you drove away, a little woohoo came out, you know? Maybe... It, Maybe you're at college, you're a freshman in college at uh, College Charleston at Citadel, or, or maybe you dropped a child off somewhere at college. I'll, I'll never forget uh, when we lived here, my son graduated from high school, and he decided to go to Anderson University up in Anderson, and so we drove him when it was time in the fall to, up to Anderson, and, and we took him to his dorm room, we helped him get the dorm room set up, we, we hung around the campus for a little bit, and kind of got to know the campus, and, and then it became afternoon and evening, it was time for us us to leave. And by that time, his roommate was off doing something else. And so he was in his room by himself. And we said our goodbyes and, and we, we left. And, and we, were, we, were, we were pretty brave. I mean, we made, it, we, made it, we made it almost to the end of the hallway. And my wife stopped and turned to me and said, do you think he's okay? <clears throat> yeah, I, 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 I think so far he's doing fine. I really, I, I, I really do. And she said, will you go and check on him? <laughs> and the dad in me thought, no, I'm not going to go check on him. And the husband in me said, yes, I'll be right back, honey. <clears throat> and so I go, and I open the dorm door, and he's sitting at his desk. He's got a basketball. He's bouncing it against the wall. And he looks at me like, Dad, what are you, what are you doing? And I said, hey, uh, dude, um, Mom wanted me to come and see if, if you're okay. And he said, you know, Dad, the first 87 seconds have gone well. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm adjusting to college life. I think I'm going to be, I think I'll be all right, Dad. Thanks. I'll tell Mom. And so I go back and tell her, I, th I think he's all right. And so we get in the car. You know how women are. They're so emotional, and she's crying, and I'm just driving. But the weirdest thing happens, some sort of allergy thing between Greenville and Columbia, and water starts shooting out of my eyes and crying like a baby. And all I could think of is, did I tell him what he needed to know? Did I, did I prepare him to be a man? Did I prepare him for college, for life after that? Is he really ready for this transition? If you're a parent, you know that feeling, right? Whether it's kindergarten or middle school, high school. Maybe you walked a daughter down the aisle or maybe you saw a moving truck leave. And you just have that thought, are they ready for this transition? And so that's what we're going to talk about for a few minutes this morning is a, a, a point in Jesus' ministry in the book of John where it's a time of transition. And we're in the, the, toward the end of the book, and in John chapter 13 through 17, all of those chapters are about one dinner. Jesus says to his followers, he says, guys, uh, my time's up. I want to 
why don't we have dinner tonight? I want to talk to you about some things. And so they have dinner, and over that, he talks about a lot of stuff, and, and he reminds them that uh, things are going to get bad. He says, over the next few days, things are going to get really, really bad. He says, don't lose hope. It's going to be okay in the end. Basically, he says, if, you, if, if, if things aren't okay, then you know it's not the end, but it's going to get tough. And then he reminds them in these chapters, he kind of takes what he's talked about, and he condenses it into some basic principles. He says, guys, you need to serve each other. You need to stick together. You need to stay connected to God. And then at the end of 16, beginning into 17, Jesus is done teaching. And that's the end of his time of teaching with his disciples. And for the next entire chapter, chapter 17, he prays for them. Because he knows they're going through this incredible transition. These 13 people will never be in a room together again. And Jesus' heart goes out, and so he spends the entire chapter praying for them. It's an incredible chapter of the Bible. It's the only chapter that the entire thing is, is dedicated to a prayer of Jesus for his followers. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Would you guys pray with me before we dive into that chapter? Father, I just uh, am so thankful for the gift of this prayer. And Lord, I am so honored to speak here, but also just to represent you is very humbling. So, Lord, I pray over the next few moments, just speak through me, speak truth. Lord, I pray that we'll have ears to hear. Lord, we ask it in your name. Amen. Here's the interesting thing about this prayer in John 17, which, by the way, if you have a device with you, if you want to get the Bible app out, or if you have one of those, what do they call the analog Bible things there, they print it on paper. If you have one of those, uh, John chapter 17, and they'll put some verses up there. But the interesting thing about this prayer is it's not just for the 13 people in the room or the 12 men that follow Jesus. It's actually for us as well. Jesus looks through history 2,000 years to Christ's followers of all times, and he prays for us as well. He says so in the 20th verse of John 17. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. And so he's praying for us, and he reveals in these verses what he wants for you. Notice what I said. He, wants, he prays for what he wants for you, not what he wants from you. Because many times we get in our, in our relationship with God, we, um, we subconsciously think of it as kind of a barter relationship. We kind of think, you know, God, what do you want from me so I can get what I need from you? And so prayer often is for us a laundry list of things. God, I need this and I need this and I need this. What do you need me to do in exchange? And that's not what Jesus prays. Jesus, Jesus simply prays something for us. And here's what's interesting is whether you've been a Christ follower for a year or 10 or 30 years, or you're not a Christ follower, you're just here, maybe somebody invited you, you're just kind of checking out the Jesus thing a little bit. It doesn't matter. These are the things Jesus wants to you, for you to experience, whether you accept them or not. So kind of dividing it into five things that Jesus prays for you and me. The first thing that he prays that he wants is he wants us to experience protection more than safety. Protection more than safety. He says in John chapter 17, verse 11, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. And this is the feeling every parent feels when they send their child into a new environment. We want them to be protected, but what do we pray for? We pray for safety. We pray, God, keep them safe. But that's not what Jesus prays. He doesn't pray for safety. 
He prays for protection because he knew the disciples would not be safe. He knew that within just a very short time, they were going to face incredible dangers. In fact, one of them, uh, James, and if you read through the Gospels over and over again, you hear about Peter, James, and John. James is one of the closest disciples to Jesus, and yet within 15 years, James will be martyred and put to death. Within just a few years, Peter, his right-hand guy, the man, that'll, the, the man that says he'll stand for Jesus at all times, within a few years, Peter will be crucified upside down. John, the, the, the young man that we think was a teenager, who described himself as the one who Jesus loved, they had such a tight relationship, he will be eventually boiled alive in oil. Jesus knows the disciples won't be safe, but yet he prays for their protection. And so what's the difference between protection and safety? Well, I kind of think of it, one of my favorite sports is NASCAR. It's nice to be back in a place that understands the word NASCAR. Denver, nobody knows what NASCAR is. But in NASCAR, there's a difference between safety and protection. If they wanted the drivers to be safe in NASCAR, they would put in a speed limit. And they would say, guys, today uh, at Talladega, we're not going to go over 80 miles an hour, okay? So we're going to be watching you. Don't go over 80. We want everybody to be safe out there. And they would be safe. It'd be incredibly boring. No one would watch the race, but they would be safe. Instead, they've invented a device called the Hans device. And it is something that attaches to the back of their neck and to their helmet. And the purpose of the Hans device is so that they can hit a wall head on going 200 miles an hour and it doesn't snap their head off. That's protection. They are protecting them. They are not making them safe. And that's what Jesus is praying. I bet you never heard a NASCAR illustration for protection of God. Safety is about fear. Protection is about boldness. Because the life of Christ, of a Christ follower, is never safe. We take relational risks all the time for the sake of Jesus. We enter into dangerous conversation with our coworkers when we step out and talk about faith. There are teachers all over this room and, and in the other campuses who this year you teach in public school and you will find ways during the year to share your faith. You will find ways to tell the story of Jesus. I remember when my wife taught in public school, we would pray together that God would protect her as she did this very dangerous thing. We share our faith in classrooms. I know this church. You dig wells in Kenya. You build schools in Nepal. You smuggle Bibles into Pakistan. Being a Christ follower is never safe. And that's why Jesus prays for protection. Specifically, he's praying for protection from Satan because Satan wants to destroy you. John 17, 15 says this, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. He wants you to be safe from the damage that Satan wants to do to your soul. Satan tempts you with choices that have devastating consequences. Satan drowns you in emotions like worry and depression and fear and anxiety. Satan's goal is the total destruction of your soul. And we see this in the men that sit with Jesus. One of them, Judas, experiences the destruction that Satan desires. Judas enters into Satan, and Judas betrays Jesus and eventually is so overwhelmed that he takes his own life. And that's what Jesus is praying, that you will be protected from what Satan wants to do to you. Not safe, but protected. 
He wants protection more than safety. The second thing that Jesus prays in this chapter is he wants you to experience unity more than uniformity. Unity more than uniformity. The 22nd verse says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that you may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. There's a question that I've had. If Jesus wanted unity, why did he choose the men he chose to be his disciples? You couldn't have a more diverse group of men. You have Peter, who is a, is a fisherman. He's a blue-collar guy. I imagine Peter used some pretty salty language. He probably drank a little too much. He was, he was kind of out there kind of guy. And then you had Matthew. Matthew was this tax collector who cheated people. He was slick. He was always working an angle, working a deal. And then over here, you got Simon the Zealot. Simon was voted in high school to be most likely to hoard weapons and start a militia, okay? You got this crazed militant over here. You got this crooked accountant over here. You got this blue-collar fisherman over here. Jesus said, hey, let's put all these guys together and let's have, have unity. How is that possible? Because we confuse unity with uniformity. Sometimes we think to, to have communion, to connect with each other, to have community, we have to have uniformity. We have to all think alike. We have to all have the same political views. We have to agree on every theological point before we can have uni unity, and that's uniformity. Jesus never expected uniformity. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Galatians says it this way, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And what Paul was saying is we have all kinds of diversity. We have Jews and we have Gentiles. We have people who are slave and we have slave owners. We have people who are male, we have people who are female. There is good stuff, there is bad stuff, there is all kinds of stuff going on, but we can all unite on one thing, on Jesus Christ. I know in this church, I love this church because there's all kinds of diversity here. I'll guarantee you that here and at the other campuses, we have people here that are staunch Republicans. We have other staunch Democrats. We have people who believe in one form of economics. We have people who believe in another form of economics. We have people who are young and old and male and female. And yet, we have unity. And you know we, the reason we have unity? Because we, we unite around Jesus Christ. Here's what we know. We know that Jesus came to earth as representing God. He came as an innocent baby. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He died on a cross for your sin and for my sins, and because of that, we can have forgiveness. He rose again on the third day, which gave us hope of eternity, and he went back to be with his Father in heaven and waits for us to join him there someday. We believe those things. We don't argue about those things, and we unite around those things, and then we have lots of differences, and we have Calvinists and Arminians and pre-millennial and post-millennial and people who don't know what millennial means and we have all that stuff going on. And when we get to heaven, it's going to be so much fun because I believe that Jesus is going to go, you know, on your theology, this was good, this was good, that was really good, that was nuts. Where did you come up with that idea? But it's okay. We're united on Jesus Christ. That's what God, Jesus prays for us, that we will unite and you best experience that in community. I think you best experience it within the context of a small group. That's been my experience in life. When Sherry and I moved to Charleston years ago, we had never been in a small group, didn't know anything about a small group. 
We didn't know anybody except uh, Greg and Debbie and, and, and their family when we moved here. And Joan Lesky, Sam, Sam and Joan Lesky uh, met Sherry, and Joan invited Sherry to come over to their house for something called a small group. Now, as an introvert, my first response was, you have got to be kidding me. We are going to go over and sing Kumbaya and read Bible verses with a bunch of people we don't like? What is that about? And we got there, and here was the surprising thing. It was absolutely as bad as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> it was awful. They made me talk to strangers. Some of the people, I didn't even understand what they were saying. They had a weird accent. I just, I didn't get any of it. At the end of the night, we were walking out, and Joan says to Sherry, hey, thanks for coming. Love to see you again next week. And in my head, I heard, there is no way we're coming back. And I hear my wife say, we'd love to. Can we bring something next time? I'm like, how about a different husband? Why don't you bring that with you? And we show up next Friday night, and here's the good news. It was as bad as it was the first time. It was just <laughs> terrible. And we went back again and again and again, and we got to know people who weren't like us, and we got to know people who thought differently than us, and they helped us through some marriage stuff we were going through, and we helped some of them through some marriage stuff they were going through, and we just learned to love each other. And these are lifelong friends, friends we still have today because we were bound together in community, we never got uniformity, but we discovered unity. That's what God wants for you. If you're not in a small group, I really recommend you join one because you can't go to heaven if you don't. Um, <laughs> wait, I don't think that's true. We, we'll, probably, we'll take that, we'll edit that out. But I will tell you that in a small group, you'll experience what heaven is like with diversity and those kinds of things. And by the way, if you're in a group and everybody agrees, I'm serious, you need to invite some other people in. You're too much uniformity. Let's get something new going on because in this, in uh, non-uniformity, there's tension and tension's not a bad thing. If you take a rubber band and you don't have any tension and you just throw it at somebody, there's no effect. But if you take a rubber band and you pull it back and you shoot it, then there's effect. And that's what happens when we don't have uniformity. We have this tension, and it's, it's a positive thing. There's power in that. When the world sees a group of people who don't all look alike, who don't all think alike, who don't act alike, who don't have the exact same values, and yet they unite around the purpose of Jesus, there's huge power in that. And that's what Jesus wants us to experience. The next thing he prays for us is he prays that we'll experience joy more than happiness. Joy more than happiness. He says in John chapter 17, verse 13, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. That, that's an interesting phrase, the full measure of my joy within them, because Jesus knows what's next. He knows what's coming in the next few hours. He knows that within 24 hours, he will be arrested, he will be beaten, he will be tried, convicted, and put to death on a cross. He knows that his disciples will be hunted down, that they'll be afraid, that it will be the worst day of his life, of their life, of the entire history of the world. The worst day the world has ever known is coming in the next 24 hours. And Jesus prays, I, I hope they experience the joy I have right now. I hope they'll know what that joy is. How could he have joy in the midst of such tough circumstances? 
I've experienced this kind of different times in my life. I've, I've kind of experienced it over the last few months in the, in the role that I have in Denver. Uh, earlier, Greg introduced me and said that I am currently the interim lead pastor of a church in Denver. Now, if you don't know much about church, uh, to kind of explain how I became the interim lead pastor, never in a church are things going so well that they say, hey, let's get an interim lead pastor. That'll be fun. I would tell you what's gone on that led to the elders coming and asking me to take that role, but it's none of your business, okay? That's just kind of where that's at. But I will tell you, it's been a mess. It's been crazy. The last six months, probably the craziest time of ministry, hardest time of ministry I've ever had in my life. And yet, in the midst of that, with the team that I get to work with, a team that we liked each other before this started, but we've gone through some really rough stuff together. And I would say that we have bonded in a way that I would, I would lay my life down for anyone on this team, and they would do the same for me. And in the midst of the hardest times, there's a joy. And we've seen God show up in miraculous ways. We've seen relational miracles that you, you, you couldn't even believe in the midst of the hardest time we've ever experienced, and it's this joy. And that's what Jesus wants you to experience it. The disciples would have joy because they were going to walk through this together. That's what Jesus wants you to have is this joy, not, not perfect circumstances. You know, a lot of times we think, you know what, it'll be better once I get through this. And then a lot of times once we get through this, now we're into that, and it's just as tough. But Jesus says, in the midst of all of that, I want you to experience joy. The best example of this is somebody that if you've been around Seacoast for a long time, you've heard this name. One of the people who helped Greg and Debbie in the very beginning was Sharon Wilson. And Sharon used to lead for many, many years. She led worship for our children. She was amazing. Easily the best worship leader for children I've ever seen in my life. And she just poured her whole self into it. And Sharon had a, a pretty rough life. Sharon never got married. Sharon never had any money. She was poor her entire life. She lived with her mom and dad and her aunt and took care of them as they got older and then in her 30s, Sharon, Sharon got cancer. And the cancer was incurable, and they tried all kinds of things, but it got worse and worse and worse. Uh, I remember one first Wednesday, there used to be a row of chairs on the very back against the wall here at Long Point. And Sharon comes in, and she's pulling her oxygen tank with her. And people who knew Sharon know what her oxygen tank had a name, of course. And the name of her oxygen tank was Ruth. Ruth, yes. Whither thou goest, I will go. Yeah. And Sharon had this phrase that she used from the time I met her all of her life. Hey, Sharon, how you doing? I'm too blessed to be stressed. A few days before she died, I walked into Sharon's hospital room. And she's just barely there. I say, hey, Sharon, how you doing? And with the little energy she has, she raised up and she said, Jeff, I'm too blessed to be stressed. How do you have that? Because Sharon had joy. Sharon's with Jesus now. And she has incredible joy. But on this earth, she knew the difference between great circumstances and a great happy life and a life filled with joy. Jesus wants us to have joy more than happiness. A couple more things. Jesus wants us to be set apart more than fitting in. The 17th verse says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. 
As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may truly be sanctified. Now, sanctify is not a word that we use. In fact, I bet no one here or at any of the campuses used the word sanctify this weekend or this week. Have you gone into Walmart and said, hey, I'm looking for the sanctify section. Do you know where that's at? I mean, we just don't use it. What it means is set apart for the explicit purpose of the creator. So whatever something was created for. So a pen is sanctified. It's set apart. Although it can be used for all kinds of different stuff, a pen is sanctified, set apart to be used to write on paper. In the Old Testament, we see the word sanctify a lot. The, the tabernacle, where they, the, the tent where they would worship God, had furniture that was sanctified. And what it meant is all of that furniture, though it could be used for a lot of different things, it was set apart specifically to only be used in the tabernacle. And so Jesus is praying that we will be set apart to be used just for the purpose that our Creator created us for. So what is the purpose that God created us for? there's really three things. God created us to worship him. He created us to experience communion with him through worship. Here at Seacoast, we do it in musical worship very often. And so at the end of the service, we're going to have time at every campus where a band comes and, and, and we'll stand or we'll sit and we'll sing and we'll pray. And that's actually being sanctified. We're, we're doing what we were created to do, to worship God. We were also created to serve each other. And so when people go to someone's house and they help them clean out from the flood or people serve in children's ministry or even when people hand out bulletins, they are doing what they were set apart to do. They are sanctified to serve. And all of us were sanctified to serve. And then the third thing that we were set apart to do, created to do, is to tell other people about Jesus. And so when a coworker says, I'm going through a tough time, I don't really know what to do next. And you say, you know, I, I don't have all the answers, but I will tell you, I'm a Christ follower. And so when I'm in circumstances like that, I, I kind of read the Bible and kind of get ideas from there. And then I, I pray and ask God to help me. When you say something like that, you're being sanctified. You're being set apart. You're doing what God created you to do. And here's the cool thing is all the things that Jesus prayed for us flow out of sanctification. So when I do what God created me to do, worship him, serve others, share my faith, then I experience joy, I experience protection, I experience unity with the body of Christ. It all flows together. One last thing, and Jesus kind of puts it all together in this package. He says the thing they have to know in order to experience this this unity and joy and all these other things, they have to understand eternity more than today. Jesus wants us to grasp eternity more than today. He says in the 24th verse, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus understood that without eternity, life here doesn't make sense. Honestly, I don't understand theology. I don't understand God. I don't understand any of this stuff until I have a grasp of what eternity looks like because here in this world, it doesn't make sense. In a world where children die, in a world where spouses leave, in a world where friends suffer, in a world where hurricanes devastate land and people and possessions, it doesn't make sense sense, unless there's something more. 
unless this, this isn't all there is. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, he agrees with that. He says life doesn't make sense without eternity. He says, if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But our hope isn't just for this life. And the reality is, is, is you know that. Whether you're a Christ follower or not, there's something inside of you that says there's got to be more to life than what I see. There has to be more than just this world. The writer of Ecclesiastes put it this way, yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has, a, he has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. Eternity is what gives us this, this year, this uh, summer, Sherry and I celebrated our 35th wedding anniversary, and so we decided to do something special. So we went to a beach. We, we went to one of those hotels where everything's paid for in advance, so you just pay in advance, and then everything is covered, and it was amazing. We're in this hotel. Our, our window looked out over the ocean. When I sat down by the swimming pool, waiters would just come bring me Diet Cokes. I wouldn't even ask. There's Diet Cokes would appear in my hand. It was a beautiful thing. And then, and then we would, they have these restaurants on site. We'd go into the restaurants. The menus didn't even have prices. For a cheap guy like me, that's amazing because the food's already paid for, right? Uh, I want two entrees. Yes, sir. We'll bring you two entrees. Three? Yeah, we'll do that. Oh, after about two or three days, we're in the room. I turned to Sherry. I said, Sherry, just hear me out. I know sometimes I have crazy ideas, but hear me out. I want to move here, okay? <laughs> Sweetheart, they get me. They get me. They understand me. And then, and then we had to leave. A tropical storm came in, and we had to leave a day early. And I was cheated out of a day of paradise. And I had to go home to my home in Denver where nobody brings me Diet Cokes and they make me pay for my food. It was unbelievable. <laughs> but a day's coming on the other side of death. I get to move into the house that Jesus built for me. And in that house, in my bedroom, there's a refrigerator. And in that refrigerator, there's always a Diet Coke every day. <laughs> it's so amazing, this, this hotel that Sherry and I got to stay in this summer doesn't even compare to what God has prepared for you and me. And here's the deal. We don't have to go home. There are no tropical storms. We are home. We never have to leave. And the point of life is not life. The point of life is it's a warm-up act. It's just the prequel. It's, it's just a tiny slice and a little picture of what Jesus has prepared for us. And Jesus died on the cross not so that we could have an incredible 70 years here. He died on the cross so that we could have an eternity in Dad's house with everything and more than we could possibly imagine. And it's when we grasp eternity... It's when we see that that's what real reality is. And what we see here is just, a, as Paul said, it's just a mist. It's just a foggy picture of what real life will be for eternity. And when this happens, I can sort out today. I can understand that the tragedies that happen today, as awful as they are, are just a slice and a piece of what God will do in eternity that is beautiful. So as we finish today, my question is, what do you need to experience most in your life today? Maybe you need to experience protection and you feel like Satan is attacking you and your family. And you need to know what it is to be protected from Satan. Maybe you need to experience unity 
There's division in your family. There's division in your, in, in, in your relationships. Maybe you need to experience joy. And in life, the way things are coming at you right now, it's hard to imagine what joy would be like. Or maybe you, you're struggling with this idea of eternity. And it sounds great, but you're facing something that makes no sense. And you really need Jesus to show up and help you grasp that eternity is real. There's a lot of things that can keep us from experiencing what Jesus prayed for us many years ago and prays for us today. Some of us are not Christ followers. We, we've never connected with Jesus in that way. And today's your chance. We're going to pray in a moment, and it's a chance for you to just pray a simple prayer that says, Jesus, I'm sorry for my past. I want to follow you in my future, and this could be an incredible change for you. For, for some, you've wandered off the path. You are a Christ follower, but you've let it go cold. You've, you've gone in directions you, you know you shouldn't go. And today's a chance to come back to the path and say, I want to experience that. And for some, the pain of life is so overwhelming that it drowns out anything else. And our prayer today is that over the next few moments, Jesus will just kind of divide the pain so you can experience his love and his joy for you. So we're going to take a moment here. We're going to pray. And then we'll talk about how we respond to what God may be saying in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, I know that you love us. I know that this is your prayer for us. Lord, I pray for someone today who has never followed you. I pray that today is the day they say, Jesus, I want a new start. Lord, I pray for someone today who has wandered off the path and relationship with you has grown cold. Lord, I pray that this will be a moment when they draw close to you. Lord, I pray for those who are just experiencing pain in life. I pray, Lord, that they will have a respite over the next few moments as your Holy Spirit just does what only your Holy Spirit can do. It comforts. Lord, we turn the next few moments over to you. Lord, we ask it in your name. Amen.